Chapter 34 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 34 Minutely informed by the cares of Marcus of all that occurred at Giant's Castle, I no sooner learnt the resolution which had been taken to make Albert travel, and the direction he was to follow, than I hastened to place myself in his path. This was at the period of those journeys of which I spoke just now, and in many of which Marcus accompanied me. The tutor and the domestics who had been provided for Albert had not known me. I therefore did not fear being seen by them. I was so impatient to see my son that I had much difficulty in abstaining as I traveled behind him at one hour's distance and thus reaching Venice, where he was to make his first stopping place. But I was resolved not to show myself to him without a species of mysterious solemnity for my object was not only the ardent maternal instinct which impelled me to his arms. I had a more important design, a duty still more maternal to fulfill. I wished to free Albert from the narrow superstitions in which his family had attempted to enclose him. It was necessary that I should obtain possession of his imagination, of his confidence, of his mind, of his whole soul. I thought him a fervent Catholic. He was so in appearance. He followed regularly all the external practices of the Roman Church. The persons who had informed Marcus of these details were ignorant of the inner heart of Albert. His father and his aunt knew it no better. They could reproach him with nothing but a savage rigorism, a too simple and too ardent manner of interpreting the gospel. They did not understand that in his rigid logic and in his loyal candor, my noble child, obstinate in the practice of true Christianity, was already an impassioned and incorrigible heretic. I was somewhat frightened by that Jesuit tutor who had been attached to his steps. I feared that I could not approach him without being observed and thwarted by a fanatical Argus but I soon knew that the unworthy Abbe Blank did not even attend to his health, and that Albert, neglected also by the servants whom he felt a repugnance at commanding, lived almost alone and abandoned to himself in all the cities in which he made any stay. I observed all his motions with anxiety. Lodging in the same hotel with him at Venice, I at last met him alone and pensive on the staircase, in the galleries, on the keys. Oh, you may imagine how my heart beat at the sight of him, how my affections yearned towards him, and what torrents of tears escaped from my dismayed and ravished eyes. He seemed to me so handsome, so noble, so sad, alas, that only object permitted to my love upon the earth. I followed him with precaution. Night approached. He entered the church of Saints John and Paul, an austere basilic filled with tombs, with which you are doubtless well acquainted. 
Albert knelt in a corner. I glided there with him. I hid myself behind a tomb. The church was deserted. The darkness became every moment more profound. Albert was motionless as a statue. Still he appeared absorbed in reverie rather than in prayer. The lamp of the sanctuary feebly illumined his features. He was so pale. I was terrified at it. His fixed eyes, his half-open lips. I know not what of despairing in his attitude and physiognomy. Broke my heart. I trembled like the vacillating flame of the lamp. It seemed to me that if I should reveal myself at that moment, he would fall annihilated. I recalled all that Marcus had told me of his nervous susceptibility and of the danger of sudden emotions upon so impressible an organization. I went out that I might not yield to the impulses of my love. I waited for him under the portico. I had thrown over my garments, which were quite simple and dark, a brown cloak, the hood of which hid my face and gave me the appearance of a woman of the people of that country. When he came out, I involuntarily made a step towards him. He stopped, and thinking me a beggar, took a piece of gold at random from his pocket and presented it to me. Oh, with what pride and what gratitude I received that alms. Here, Consuelo, it is a sequin of Venice. I have had it bored to pass a chain through it, and I wear it always on my bosom as a precious jewel, as a relic. It has never left me since that day, this pledge which my child had sanctified. I was not mistress of my transport. I seized that dear hand and carried it to my lips. He drew it back with a kind of terror. It was wet with my tears. "'What are you doing, woman?' said he to me in a voice, the pure and sonorous tones of which resounded to the metal of my bones. "'Why do you bless me thus for so trifling a gift? "'Doubtless you are very unhappy, and I have given you too little. "'How much do you require to relieve you from suffering? "'Speak, I wish to console you. "'I hope I may be able.' "'And he took in his hands, without looking at it, all the gold he had about him. Thou hast given me enough, good young man, replied I. I am satisfied. But why do you weep, said he, struck by the sobs which choked my voice? Have you then any sorrow which my riches cannot remedy? No, replied I. I weep from emotion and joy. From joy? Are there then tears of joy? And such tears for a piece of gold? O oh, human misery, woman, take all the rest, I beseech you, but do not weep for joy. Think of your brothers the poor, so numerous, so debased, so miserable, all of whom I cannot comfort. He went away sighing. I did not follow him for fear of betraying myself. He had left his gold upon the pavement as he handed it to me in a kind of haste to get rid of it. I gathered it up and put it into the box for the poor in order to satisfy the noble charity of my son. The next day, I watched him again and saw him enter St. Mark's. I had resolved to be stronger and more calm. I was so. We were once more alone in the semi-obscurity of the church. 
He mused for a long time, and suddenly I heard a murmur as he rose. Oh, Christ, they crucify thee all the days of their life. Yes, replied I, half reading his thought, the Pharisees and the doctors of the law. He shuddered, remained silent for a moment, and said in a low voice without turning and without endeavoring to see who thus addressed him, Again, the voice of my mother. Consuelo, I almost fainted on hearing Albert thus invoke my memory and keep in his heart the instinct of this filial divination. But the fear of troubling his reason, already so excited, restrained me still. I went again to wait for him under the porch, and when he passed, satisfied with seeing him, I did not approach him. But he came near to me, and recoiled with a movement of horror. Signora, said he to me after a moment's hesitation, why do you beg today? Is it then indeed a trade, as the pitiless rich say? Have you no family? Can you not be useful to someone, instead of wandering at night like a specter around the churches? Was not what I gave you yesterday sufficient to provide for today? Do you wish then to forestall the part which might fall to your brethren? I do not beg, replied I. I have put thy gold into the box of the poor, except one sequin which I wish to keep for love of thee. Who are you then, cried he, seizing me by the arm? Your voice agitates me to the very depths of my soul. It seems to me that I know you. Show me your face. But no, I do not wish to see it. You make me afraid. Oh, Albert, said I, beside myself and forgetting all prudence, thou also, hast thou then fear of me? He shuddered from head to foot and murmured again with an expression of terror and of religious respect. Yes, it is her voice. It is the voice of my mother. I do not know who is thy mother, returned I, frightened by my imprudence. I only know thy name because the poor know thee already. Why should I frighten thee? Is thy mother then dead? They say that she is dead, replied he, but my mother is not dead to me. Where does she live then? In my heart, in my thought, continually, eternally. I have dreamt her voice. I have dreamt her features a hundred times, a thousand times. I was terrified as much as charmed by this imperious expansion, which thus drew him towards me. I saw in him signs of wandering. I overcame my tenderness to calm him. Albert said I to him, I did know your mother. I was her friend. I was charged by her to speak to you of her some day when you should be old enough to understand what I have to say to you. I am not what I appear. I followed you yesterday and today in order to have an opportunity to converse with you. Listen to me, therefore, with calmness, and do not allow yourself to be troubled by vain superstitions. Will you follow me under the arcades of the procurators, which are now deserted, and talk with me? Do you feel yourself quiet enough, concentrated enough for that purpose? You, the friend of my mother, cried he. You, charged by her to speak to me of her. Oh, yes, speak, speak. You see well that I was not deceived, 
that an inward voice gave me warning. I felt that there was something of her in you. No, I am not superstitious. I am not insensate. Only I have a heart more alive and more susceptible than many others to certain things which others do not understand and do not feel. You understand that if you understood my mother. Speak to me then of her. Speak to me again with her voice, with her spirit. Having thus succeeded, although imperfectly, in relieving his emotion, I led him under the arcades and began by questioning him respecting his childhood, his recollections, the principles which had been communicated to him, and the conception he had formed of the principles and the ideas of his mother. My questions clearly proved to him that I was acquainted with the secrets of his family and capable of understanding those of his heart. Oh, my daughter, what enthusiastic pride took possession of me when I saw the ardent love which Albert cherished for me, the faith he had in my piety and virtue, the horror with which he was inspired by the superstitious detestation of the Catholics of Riesenberg for my memory, the purity of his soul, the grandeur of his religious and patriotic sentiment. Finally, all the sublime instincts which a Catholic education had not been able to stifle in him. But at the same time, with what a profound sorrow was I affected by the precocious and incurable sadness of that young soul, and the struggles which already crushed it as they had attempted to crush my own. Albert believed himself still a Catholic. He did not revolt openly against the decrees of the Church. He needed to believe in a constituted religion already more instructed and meditative than belonged to his years. He was hardly twenty. He had reflected much upon the long and gloomy history of the heresies, and he could not resolve to condemn certain of our doctrines. Compelled, nevertheless, to mistrust the errors of innovators so exaggerated and distorted by ecclesiastical historians, he floated on a sea of uncertainties at one time condemning revolt, at another cursing tyranny, and unable to conclude anything except that men of good had erred in their attempts at reform, and that men of blood had stained the sanctuary in their wish to defend it. It was therefore necessary to throw light upon his mind, to exhibit the faults and excesses of both parties, to teach him to embrace courageously the defense of the innovators, even while lamenting their inevitable excesses, to exhort him to abandon the support of craft, of violence and subjection, even while recognizing the excellence of a certain mission in a more distant past. I had no difficulty in enlightening him. He had already foreseen, already divined, already concluded before I had finished the proof. His admirable instincts responded to my inspirations, but when he understood completely, a sorrow more overpowering than that of uncertainty seized upon his dismayed mind. Truth was not then recognized anywhere upon the earth. The law of God was no longer living in any sanctuary. No people, no caste, no school practiced the Christian virtue and endeavored to illustrate and develop it. 
both Catholic and Protestant, had abandoned the divine path. Everywhere prevailed the law of the strongest. Everywhere the weak were oppressed, the poor chained and debased. The Christ was crucified every day upon all the altars erected by men. The night passed in this bitter and engrossing conversation. The clock slowly struck the hours without Albert's thinking to count them. I was affrighted at this power of intellectual tension, which made me foresee in him so much inclination for strife and so many facilities for sorrow. I admired the manly pride, the heart-rending expression of my noble and unhappy child. I again found myself entire in him. I thought I read my past life and recommenced with him the history of the long tortures of my heart and brain. I contemplated upon his broad brow, illumined by the moon, the useless outward and moral beauty of my solitary and uncomprehended youth. I wept over him and over myself at the same time. His lamentations were long and heartrending. I dare not yet disclose to him the secrets of our conspiracy. I feared that he would not understand them at once, and that, in his grief, he might reject them as useless and dangerous efforts. Anxious at seeing him kept awake and walking for so long a time, I promised to show to him a harbor of safety, if he would consent to wait and to prepare himself for austere confidences. I gently excited his imagination by the hope of a new revelation, and I reconducted him to the hotel in which we both lived, promising another interview, which I put off for several days in order not to abuse the tension of his faculties. Only at the moment of leaving me did he think of asking me who I was. I cannot tell you, replied I. I bear a false name. I have reasons for concealing myself. Do not speak of me to anyone. He never asked me any other questions and appeared to content himself with my answer. But his delicate reserve was accompanied by another feeling, strange as his character, gloomy as his mental habits. He told me a long while afterwards that he always considered me thenceforth as the soul of his mother appearing to him under a real form and with circumstances explicable to the vulgar, but in fact supernatural. Thus my dear Albert persisted in recognizing me in spite of myself. He preferred to invent a supernatural world rather than to doubt my presence, and I could not succeed in deceiving the victorious instinct of his heart. All my efforts to appease his excitement served only to fix it in a kind of calm and restrained delirium, which had no conductor nor confidant, not even myself, who was its object. He submitted religiously to the will of the spirit which forbade him to recognize, to name it, but he persisted in believing himself under the power of a spirit. From this frightful tranquility which Albert preserved thenceforth in the wanderings of his imagination, from that somber and stoical courage which has made him always meet, without paleness, the phantoms produced by his brain, there resulted to me for a long time a fatal error. I knew not the strange idea he had formed of my reappearance upon the earth. 
I thought that he accepted me as a mysterious friend of his deceased mother and of his own childhood. I was amazed, it is true, at the little curiosity which he testified to me, and the little astonishment caused in him by the assiduity of my cares. But this blind respect, this delicate submission, this absence of anxiety with regard to all the realities of life, appeared to me so conformable with his reserved, pensive, and contemplative character that I did not sufficiently seek to account for them and to fathom their secret causes. While laboring, therefore, to fortify his reasoning powers against the excesses of his enthusiasm, I contributed, without knowing it, to develop in him that kind of delirium at once sublime and deplorable, of which he was so long the sport and the victim. Little by little, in a succession of interviews which had neither confidants nor witnesses, I developed to him the doctrines of which our order has made itself the depository and the secret propagator. I initiated him into our project of universal reform. At Rome, in the subterraneans reserved to our mysteries, Marcus presented him and caused him to be admitted to the first grade of masonry reserving to himself the power of revealing to him, beforehand, the symbols hidden under those vague and strange forms, the many-faced interpretation of which adapts itself so well to the measure of intelligence and courage in the initiated. During seven years I followed my son in all his journeys, always departing from the places he had left a day after him, and reaching those he was to visit the day after his arrival. I was always careful to lodge at a certain distance, and never to show myself either to his tutor or to his servants, whom, moreover, according to my advice, he took the precaution to change frequently and to keep always at a distance from his person. I sometimes asked him if he was not surprised to find me everywhere. Oh, no, replied he, I know very well that you will follow me everywhere. And when I wished him to express the reason of that confidence, my mother has charged you to give me life, replied he, and you know very well that if you abandoned me now, I should die. He spoke always in an enthusiastic and as if inspired manner. I accustomed myself to see him so, and became so also without my knowledge while conversing with him. Marcus has often reproached me, and I have often reproached myself for having in this manner fed the internal flame which consumed Albert. Marcus would have wished to enlighten him by more positive lessons and by a colder logic, but at other moments I have been reassured by the thought that but for the elements with which I furnished him that flame would have consumed him more quickly and more cruelly. My other children had shown the same disposition to enthusiasm. Their souls had been crushed. They had been extinguished like torches, the brightness of which is feared. They had sunk before acquiring strength to resist. Without my breath, which incessantly revived the sacred spark in a free and pure air, Albert's soul would perhaps have gone to join his brothers, as, without the breath of Marcus, I should have been extinguished before having lived. 
I frequently applied myself, moreover, to distract his mind from that eternal aspiration towards ideal things. I advised him. I required of him positive studies. He obeyed me with gentleness, with conscientiousness. He studied the natural sciences, the languages of the various countries through which he passed. He read assiduously. He cultivated the arts and devoted himself, without a master, to music. All this was but a recreation, a rest to his ardent and broad understanding. A stranger to all the excitements of his age, born enemy of the world and its vanities. He lived everywhere in a deep seclusion, and resisting with obstinacy the advice of his tutor. He did not wish to enter any saloon, to be brought forward in any court. He hardly saw, in two or three of the capitals, his father's oldest and most serious friends. He assumed before them a grave and reserved demeanor which left no room for criticism and he had expansion and intimacy only with some adepts of our order, to whom Marcus particularly recommended him. However, he requested us not to exact of him that he should busy himself with propagandism before he felt the gift of persuasion developed within him. And he often declared to me with frankness that he had it not, because he had not as yet a faith sufficiently complete in the excellence of our methods." He allowed himself to be carried from grade to grade, like a docile pupil, but whilst examining everything with a severe logic and a scrupulous uprightness, he always reserved to himself, he told me, the right of proposing to us reforms and ameliorations whenever he felt himself enlightened enough to dare to yield to his personal inspirations. Until then, he wished to remain humble, patient and submissive to the forms established in our secret society. Buried in study and meditation, he kept his tutor in respect for the seriousness of his character and the coldness of his demeanor. The abbey came, therefore, to consider him as a sad bookworm and withdrew from him as much as possible, to busy himself only with the intrigues of his order. He was a Jesuit, Albert even made quite long residences in France and in England without his company. He was often a hundred leagues from him and was contented with appointing a place of meeting when he wished to see another country. Often, indeed, they did not travel together. At those periods, I had the greatest liberty to see my son, and his exclusive tenderness repaid me a hundredfold for the care I bestowed upon him. My health had become re-established, as it sometimes happens to constitutions greatly changed, to become habituated to their sufferings, and not to feel them. I hardly perceived mine any longer. Fatigue, watchings, long conversations, painful journeys, instead of overpowering me, sustained me in a state of slow and continued fever, which became and has remained my normal condition. Fragile and trembling as you see me, there are no labors of fatigues which I cannot endure better than you, beautiful flower of the spring. Agitation has become my element, and I repose in continued action, like those couriers by profession who have learned to sleep as they gallop on their horses. 
this experience of what an energetic soul in a diseased body could bear and accomplish gave me more confidence in Albert's strength. I became accustomed to see him sometimes languishing and broken like myself, animated and feverish like me at other hours. We have suffered together the same physical pains resulting from the same mental emotions. And never perhaps has our intimacy been more sweet and more tender than in those hours of trial when the same fever burned in our veins or the same exhaustion mingled our feeble sighs. How many times has it seemed to us that we were the same being? How many times have we broken the silence into which the same reverie plunged us to address to each mutually the same words? How many times, finally, agitated, or exhausted in a contrary manner? Have we communicated by clasping our hands, languor or animation each to the other? How much good and how much evil have we known in common? O oh, my son, O oh, my only passion, O oh, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, how many tempests have we passed through, covered by the same celestial ages? How many ravages have we resisted by drawing towards each other and pronouncing the same formula of salvation, love, truth, justice. We were in Poland on the frontiers of Turkey, and Albert, having gone through all the successive initiations of masonry and of the higher grades which formed the last link between that preparatory society and our own, was about to direct his steps toward this part of Germany in order to be admitted to the sacred banquet of the Invisibles, when Count Christian de Rudelstadt recalled him to his side. This was a thunderbolt to me. As to my son, in spite of the care I had taken to prevent his forgetting his family, he loved them no longer but as a tender remembrance of the past. He no longer comprehended existence with them. It did not, however, come into our minds to resist that order, issued with the cold dignity and the confidence of paternal authority, as understood in the Catholic and patrician families of our country. Albert prepared to leave me without knowing for how long a time we were to be separated, but without imagining that he would not see me again, and strengthened with Marcus the bonds of the association which called upon him. Albert had little notion of time, and still less appreciation of the material eventualities of life. Are we leaving each other, said he, seeing me weep in spite of myself? We cannot leave each other. Every time that I have called you in the depths of my heart, you have appeared to me. I shall call you again. Albert, Albert, cried I, I cannot follow you this time where you go. He became pale and clung to me like a frightened child. The moment had come to reveal to him my secret. I am not the soul of thy mother, said I to him after some preamble. I am thy mother herself. Why do you tell me that, replied he with a strange smile. Did I not know it? Do we not resemble each other? Have I not seen your portrait at Riesenberg? Had I ever forgotten you moreover? Have I not always seen you, always known you? And thou wert not surprised to see me living? Me, who am supposed to be buried in the chapel of Giant's Castle? No, replied he. 
I was not surprised. I was too happy for that. God has the power of miracles, and it is not for man to be astonished at them. That strange child had more difficulty in understanding the frightful realities of my history than the miracle which he had cherished. He had believed in my resurrection as in that of the Christ. He had received literally my doctrines respecting the transmission of life. He believed in it with excess, that is to say. He was not astonished at my preserving the remembrance and the certainty of my individuality after having put off my body in order to assume another. I do not even know if I convinced him that my life was uninterrupted by my trance and that my mortal covering did not remain in the sepulchre. He listened to me with an absent yet excited face, as if he heard from my mouth other words than those which I uttered. There passed in him at that moment something mysterious and inexplicable. One would have said that the destiny which reserved for him a lot similar to my own denied to him the faculty of foreseeing and understanding it. A terrible bond still kept Albert upon the brink of the abyss. Actual life could not take possession of him before he had undergone that last crisis from which I had miraculously issued, that apparent death which was to be in him the last effort of the notion of eternity struggling against the notion of time. My heart was broken in separating from him. A sorrowful presentiment vaguely warned me that he was about to enter into that phase which might be called climacteric and which had so violently disturbed my existence that the hour was not far distant in which Albert would be annihilated or renewed. I had remarked in him a tendency to the cataleptic state. He had had under my eyes fits of sleep so long, so profound, so frightful. His breathing was then so weak, his pulse so little felt, that I did not see saying or writing to Marcus, we must never let Albert be buried, or we must not fear to break open his tomb. Unhappily for us, Marcus could no longer present himself at Giant's Castle. He could no longer set foot upon the soil of the empire. He had been seriously compromised by an insurrection at Prague, to which, indeed, his influence had not been wanting. He had only escaped by flight from the rigor of the Austrian laws. Consumed by anxiety, I returned here. Albert had promised to write to me every day. I promised myself on my side that as soon as a letter failed me, I would start for Bohemia and present myself at Riesenberg at every risk in any event. The grief occasioned by our separation was at first less cruel to him than to myself. He did not understand what took place. He seemed not to believe it. But when he had entered under that fatal roof, the atmosphere which seems a poison to the ardent bosoms of the descendants of Ziska, he received a terrible shock in his whole being. He ran and shut himself up in the chamber I had inhabited. He called me, and not seeing me appear, he persuaded himself that I was dead a second time, and that I should not be restored to him in the course of the present life. At least it is thus he has since explained to me what took place in him at that fatal hour when his reason and his faith were shaken for whole years. He looked at my portrait for a long time, 
A portrait is never more than an imperfect resemblance, and a particular conception, which the artist has formed of us, is always so much below the feeling conceived and preserved by those who have ardently loved us, that no resemblance can satisfy them. It even afflicts them, and sometimes excites their indignation. Albert, on comparing that representation of my youth and my past beauty, did not find his dear old mother. Her gray hairs, which seemed to him most august, and this extreme paleness which spoke to his heart. He withdrew from the portrait with terror and reappeared before his relatives, somber, taciturn, and dismayed. He visited my tomb. He was seized there with dizziness and horror. The idea of death appeared monstrous to him, and yet, to console him, his father told him that I was there, that he must prostrate himself and pray for the repose of my soul. Repose, cried Albert beside himself, the repose of the soul. No, the soul of my mother is not made for such an extinction any more than my own. Neither my mother nor I wish to repose in a tomb. Never, never, this Catholic cavern, these sealed sepulchres, this abandonment of life, this divorce between heaven and earth, between the body and the soul, horrifies me. It was by such exclamations that Albert began to cast fear into the simple and timid soul of his father. His words were reported to the chaplain that he might endeavor to explain them. That narrow-minded man saw in them only a cry torn from him by the feeling of my eternal damnation. The superstitious fear which took possession of the minds of those around Albert, the efforts of his family to bring him back to Catholic submissiveness, soon succeeded in torturing him, and his excitement assumed wholly the diseased character which you saw in him. His ideas became confused. In consequence of seeing and touching the proofs of my death, he forgot that he had known me living, and I seemed to him only a wandering specter, always ready to abandon him. His fantasy invoked that specter, and attributed to it no other than incoherent words, sorrowful cries, ominous threats. When calmness returned to him, his reason remained as if veiled by a cloud. He had lost the memory of recent events. He persuaded himself that he had had a dream of eight years by my side, or rather those eight years of happiness, of activity, of strength, appeared to him like the dream of an hour. Receiving no letter, I was about to fly to him. Marcus restrained me. The post, said he, intercepted our letters, or the family of Rudolstadt suppressed them. He constantly received news from Riesenberg through his faithful correspondent. My son was considered calm, well, happy in his family. You know what care was taken to conceal his situation, and it was with success at first. In his journeys, Albert had become acquainted with young Trenck. He was attached to him by a warm friendship. Trenck, beloved by the Princess of Prussia and persecuted by King Frederick, wrote to my son of his joys and sorrows. He earnestly requested him to come to him at Dresden and give him advice and assistance. Albert made the journey, and hardly had he left the gloomy chateau of Riesenberg when memory, zeal, 
reason were restored to him. Trank had met my son in the militia of the invisible neophytes. There they had comprehended each other and sworn a chivalric brotherhood. Informed by Marcus of their intended interview, I hastened to Dresden. I saw Albert again. I followed him to Prussia, where he introduced himself into the king's palace under a disguise, in order to serve the love of Trank and execute a message of the Invisibles. Marcus judged that this activity and the consciousness of a useful and generous part would save Albert from his dangerous melancholy. He was right. Albert recovered life among us. Marcus wished on his return to bring him here and keep him for some time in the society of the venerable chiefs of the order. He was convinced that by breathing this true atmosphere of his superior soul, Albert would recover the lucidity of his genius. But an unfortunate circumstance suddenly disturbed the confidence of my son. He had met upon his route the impostor Cagliostro, initiated by the imprudence of the Rosicrucians into some of their mysteries. Albert, long since received Rosicrucian, had passed that grade and presided at one of their assemblies as Grand Master. He then saw near at hand what he had before only guessed. He touched all the various elements which composed the Masonic associations. He recognized the error, the infatuation, the vanity, the imposture, the fraud even, which then began to creep into these sanctuaries already invaded by the insanity and the vices of the age. Cagliostro, with his vigilant police of the little secrets of the world, which he brought forward as the revelations of a familiar spirit, with his captious eloquence, which parodied great revolutionary inspirations, with his witchcraft, which invoked pretended ghosts. Cagliostro, the intriguing and the avaricious, horrified the noble adept. The credulity of the people of the world, the low superstition of a great number of Freemasons, the shameful avidity excited by promises of the philosopher's stone, and of so many other fooleries of the time in which we live, threw a fatal light upon his soul. In a life of seclusion and of study, he had not sufficiently known mankind. He was not prepared to struggle with so many bad instincts. He could not bear with such vanities. He wished that charlatans and sorcerers should be unmasked and driven with shame from the portals of our temples. He could not allow that the degrading presence of Cagliostro should be suffered because it was too late to get rid of him because that man, if irritated, could destroy many estimable persons, while, if flattered by their protection and apparent confidence, he could render great services to the cause, without really knowing it. Albert was indignant and pronounced upon our work the anathema of a firm and ardent soul. He predicted to us that we should fail in consequence of permitting the alloy to penetrate too deeply into the chain of gold. He left us, saying that he would reflect upon what we endeavored to make him understand of the terrible necessities of the work of conspiracies, and that he would return to ask of us a baptism when his poignant doubts were dissipated. We did not know, alas, what gloomy reflections were his in the solitude of Riesenberg. 
he did not tell us of them. Perhaps he did not remember them when their bitterness had passed. He lived there yet a year in an alternation of calmness and of transport, of exuberant strength and sorrowful depression. He sometimes wrote to us without informing us of his sufferings and the failure of his health. He bitterly combated our politic measures. He wished us at once to cease laboring in the dark and deceiving men in order to induce them to drink of the cup of regeneration. Throw aside your black mask, said he. Come out from your caverns. Efface from the pediment of your temple the word mystery, which you have stolen from the Roman church and which does not befit the men of the future. Do you not see that you have assumed the methods of the order of the Jesuits? No, I cannot labor with you. It is seeking life in the midst of corpses. Appear at once in the light of day. Lose not the time which is precious to organize your army. Trust to the enthusiasm, to the sympathy of the people, and to the spontaneity of generous instincts. Besides, an army is corrupted in repose, and the craft which it employs in concealing itself takes from it the power and life necessary for the fight. Albert was right in principle, but the time had not come for him to be right in practice. That time is perhaps still far off. At last you came to Riesenberg. You surprised him in the greatest distresses of his soul. You know, or rather do not know, what action you had upon him, even to give him a new life, even to give him death. When he thought that all was at an end between yourself and him, all his strength forsook him. He allowed himself to pine away. Until then, I was ignorant of the true nature and of the degree of intensity of his disease. Marcus's correspondent informed him that Giant's Castle was closed more and more to strangers, that Albert no longer left it, that he passed for a monomaniac in the eyes of the world, but that the poor still loved and blessed him, and that some persons of superior sense who had seen him after having been struck by the eccentricity of his manners, on leaving him, did justice to his eloquence, to his wisdom, to the grandeur of his conceptions. But finally, I learned that Supperville had been sent for, and I flew to Riesenberg, in spite of Marcus, who, seeing me resolved upon everything, exposed himself to everything in order to follow me. Disguised as beggars, we reached the walls of the chateau. No one recognized us. It was 27 years since I had been seen there, 10 since they had seen Marcus. They gave us alms and ordered us away. But we met a friend, an unexpected savior in the person of poor Zdenko. He treated us as brothers and conceived an affection for us because he understood how much we were interested for Albert. We knew how to speak to him the language which gratified his enthusiasm and induced him to reveal all the secrets of the mortal sorrows of his friend. Zadanka was no longer the furious man by whom your life had been threatened. Dejected and broken, he came like ourselves to ask humbly at the gate of the chateau for tidings of Albert, and like us, he was sent away with vague replies, frightful to our anguish. By a strange coincidence with Albert's visions, Zdenko pretended to have known me. 
I had appeared to him in his dreams, in his ecstasies, and without accounting for anything, he abandoned his will to an artless attraction. Woman, said he often to me, I do not know your name, but you are the good angel of my potabrad. Very often have I seen him draw your face upon paper and describe your voice, your look and your step in his good hours, when heaven opened before him and he saw appear around his bed those who are no more, as men say. Far from repelling the effusions of Zdenko, I encouraged them. I flattered his illusions and persuaded him to receive us, Marcus and myself, in the grotto of the Schreckenstein. On seeing that subterranean abode and learning that my son had lived there for weeks and almost for whole months, concealed from everyone, I understood the gloomy color of his thoughts. I saw a tomb to which Zdenko seemed to render a kind of worship, and it was not without difficulty that I learned its destination. It was the greatest secret of Albert and Zdenko, and that respecting which they were most reserved. Alas, it is there, said the insensate to me, that we have buried Wanda Duprachalich, the mother of my Albert. She did not wish to remain in that chapel, where they had sealed her in the stone. Her bones constantly moved and bounded, and these here, added he, pointing to the ossuary of the Taborites on the banks of the fountain, constantly reproached us for not bringing her to their side. We searched for that sacred tomb, and we have buried her here, and every day we brought flowers and kisses. Terrified by this circumstance, which might at a future period occasion the discovery of my secret, Marcus questioned Sedenko and learned that they buried my coffin without opening it. This Albert had been so ill, so delirious as not to remember my existence and to persist in the idea of my death. But was not all this a dream of Sedenko's? I could not believe my ears. Oh, my friend, said I to Marcus in despair, if the torch of his reason be so far extinguished and forever, may God grant him the favor of death. Master at last of all Zdenko's secrets, we knew that we could introduce ourselves into Giant's Castle by subterranean passages and unknown galleries. We followed him there one night and waited at the entrance of the cistern while he stole into the interior of the mansion. He returned, laughing and singing, to tell us that Albert was cured, that he slept, that new garments and a crown had been put on him. I felt as if thunderstruck. I understood that Albert was dead. I do not know what happened afterwards. I woke several times in the midst of a fever. I was lying upon bearskins and dried leaves in the subterranean chamber which Albert had inhabited under the Schreckenstein. Sedanko and Marcus watched me by turns. The one said to me with an air of joy and triumph that his potabrad was cured, that he would soon come to see me. The other, pale and pensive, said to me, Perhaps all is not lost. Let us not give up the hope of the miracle which rescued you from the tomb. I understood no more. I was delirious. I wished to rise, to run, to cry out. I could not, and the desolate Marcus, seeing me in this state, had neither strength nor leisure to attend to me seriously. 
All his mind, all his thoughts were absorbed by an anxiety far more terrible. At last one night, I think it was the third of my crisis, I found myself calm and felt my strength return to me. I tried to recollect my ideas. I succeeded in rising. I was alone in that horrible cavern, dimly lighted by a sepulchral lamp. I wished to go out. I was shut in. Where were Marcus, Sedenko, and especially Albert? My memory returned to me. I uttered a cry, to which the frozen vaults gave back so gloomy an echo that the sweat poured from my forehead, cold as the dampness of the sepulchre. I thought myself again buried alive. What had happened? What was now happening? I fell upon my knees. I wrung my hands in a despairing prayer. I called Albert with furious cries. At last I heard dull and uneven steps, as of persons approaching laden with a burden. A dog barked and whined, and more quick than they came several times to scratch at the door. It opened, and I saw Marcus and Sedenko bringing to me Albert, stiff, discolored, dead and fine, according to all appearances. His dog Cinnabar leaped about him and licked his down-hanging hands. Sedenko sang as he improvised in a sweet and impressive voice, "'Come and sleep upon the bosom of your mother.' Poor friend, long deprived of rest. Come and sleep until the day. We will wake you to see the sun rise. I threw myself upon my son. He is not dead, cried I. Oh, Marcus, you have saved him, have you not? He is not dead. He will wake again. Madam, do not flatter yourself, replied Marcus with a horrible firmness. I know nothing. I can believe nothing. Be courageous, whatever may happen. Help me. Forget yourself. I need not tell you what pains we took to reanimate Albert. Thank heaven there was a stove in that cavern. We succeeded in warming his limbs. See, said I to Marcus, his hands are warm. We can give warmth to marble, replied he in an ominous tone. That is not giving life. This heart is motionless as a stone." Horrible hours dragged along in this expectation, in this terror, in this discouragement. Marcus on his knees, with his ear glued against the chest of my son, his face gloomy, sought in vain for a feeble indication of life. Fainting, exhausted, I no longer dared to utter a word or address a question. I interrogated the terrible brow of Marcus. A moment came when I did no longer look at him. I thought I read the final sentence. Sedenko, seated in a corner, played with Cinnabar like a child and continued to sing. He sometimes interrupted himself to tell us that we were tormenting Albert, that we ought to let him sleep, that he, Sedenko, had seen him thus for whole weeks and that he would soon awake of himself. Marcus suffered cruelly at the confidence of that innocent. He could not share it. But I persisted in giving faith to it, and I was really inspired. Sedenko had the celestial divination and angelic certainty of the truth. At last I thought I caught an imperceptible motion upon Marcus's brow of brass. It seemed to me that his contracted eyebrows were unbent. I saw his hand tremble, then stiffen again in a new effort of courage. Then he sighed deeply 
withdrew his ear from the place where my son's heart had perhaps beat, tried to speak, restrained himself, frightened at the perhaps chimerical joy he was about to give me, leaned forward again, listened anew, shuddered, and suddenly rising and throwing himself back, wavered and again fell as if dying. No more hope, cried I, tearing my hair. Wanda, replied Marcus with a stifled voice, your son lives. And broken by the effort of his attention, of his courage, of his solicitude, my stoical and tender friend staggered and fell exhausted by the side of Zdenko. End of chapter 34